Welcome to Lawson Insight. I'm Mark Fancourt-Smith, a partner in Lawson Lindell's Vancouver office, and I practice in the firm's dispute resolution group. And I'm Alexandra Stoichev, and I'm an associate in the firm's Calgary office, and I practice primarily in the dispute resolution group as well. So a few months ago, we had Meg Gailey on the podcast to chat about Alberta's Protecting Victims of Non-Consensual Distribution of Intimate Images Act, which is legislation that is intended to stop the spread of intimate images online and to provide a means of redress for victims. Today, we're going to chat with Jenny Buchanan about a recent decision from the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench in which the court recognized a new tort that protects the distribution of private information, which can include intimate images as well. Jenny is an associate in the Commercial Litigation and Dispute Resolution Group in Calgary. She has a general commercial litigation practice with a focus on commercial arbitration, administrative law, and employment disputes. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jenny. Hi, thank you for having me. So Jenny, to start off, perhaps you can tell us the background facts of ES and Shillington, the the case that has recognized this new tort in Alberta. Certainly. So this is a decision of Justice Inglis that was released in September of this year. The facts are a little disturbing, so I'll just give a high-level summary. The plaintiff and the defendant had been in a romantic relationship for more than a decade. And during the course of the relationship, the plaintiff shared some explicit photographs and videos of himself with the defendant. And the defendant then posted those images and videos online without the plaintiff's consent. The defendant told the plaintiff about that sometime later, uh, and the plaintiff was able to track some of the images through the defendant's social media accounts and found, to their dismay, that they were posted on pornography websites. As a result of, of this, the plaintiff suffered significant mental distress and embarrassment. The defendant, during the course of their relationship, was also um, physically and sexually abusive to the plaintiff. The relationship ended. The plaintiff sued the defendant for a number of recognized intentional torts, including battery and sexual assault, and also asked the court to recognize a new intentional tort, the tort of public disclosure of private information. An interesting thing about this case is that the defendant did not defend the action. And so the court entered default judgment for the plaintiff's claims for recognized torts. And the court then convened a special chamber's application to hear argument about whether or not the court should recognize the new tort of public disclosure of private information. And tell us a little bit more about in what situations a court will recognize a new tort, because that's pretty rare for them to do. And so from a legal perspective, that's what makes this case quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So in 2020, the Supreme Court of Canada endorsed three rules that courts will apply when they're called upon to recognize a new tort. So the first rule is the rule of necessity. And that requires the court to be satisfied that there doesn't already exist an adequate remedy to address the wrong. And those alternative remedies could be in the form of an existing tort, an independent statutory scheme, or judicial review. The second rule is that the new tort must reflect and address a wrong visited by one person upon another person. The court must be satisfied that the facts cry out for a remedy. Then the third rule is that the change to the legal system brought by recognizing the new tort must not be indeterminate or substantial. So according to this Third rule, the court must be satisfied that the tort would not create indeterminate liability, result in a radical shift in the law, or contradict established principles of law. And this rule, in my mind, reflects a balancing of interests, I suppose. So on the one hand, 
It balances the court's respect for legislative supremacy and ensures that judge-made changes to the law are only incremental, but on the other hand, allows the common law to evolve and respond to problems that perhaps, for example, the legislature has not yet responded to. One of the interesting things about this case, in addition to it having recognized a new tort, was that the legislation which it sought to supplement the um, Protecting Victims of Non-Consensual Distribution of Intimate Images Act was as recent as it is. And so why in this case did the court decide to recognize the new tort? Yes, that's a great point. And Justice Inglis spent quite a bit of her analysis on the question of whether that new statute provided an adequate alternative remedy. Justice Inglis determined or concluded that there was not a statutory remedy for the wrong in this case. She recognized that Alberta had introduced the Protecting Victims of Non-Consensual Distribution of Intimate Images Act, but found that a remedy wasn't available to the plaintiff under that act because it came into force after the defendant had posted the images. Justice Inglis also found that there were two additional gaps in the statutory framework that the new tort would fill. The first is that the act only protects against public distribution of images in which the victim is nude, exposing their genital or anal regions or breasts, or is engaged in a sexual activity. So while that would have captured the content in this case, Justice Inglis noted that the act doesn't protect other content that people may have an interest in protecting from distribution. And the second gap that Justice Inglis noted is that the act does not protect against a person privately sharing intimate images of another person. And that is something that this new tort could fill. Justice Inglis also considered whether there were existing torts that could address the conduct at issue in this case. And specifically, she considered the tort of breach of confidence and the tort of intentional infliction of mental distress and concluded that both impose undue barriers on plaintiffs. Um, So, for example, in a breach of confidence action, the plaintiff has to prove that the information was both confidential and communicated in confidence, uh, which is a, a hurdle that a plaintiff has to overcome. And then uh, in terms of the the tort of intentional infliction of mental distress, uh, Justice Inglis found that the fact that the plaintiff must prove the defendant's conduct was calculated to produce harm. Uh, In other words, the plaintiff has to prove a subjective intention on the part of the defendant was an undue barrier to a remedy. That's interesting in a couple of ways. And and I've run into that difficulty when pleading things before, you know, to try to capture the you know, intentional dissemination of, of private information or or otherwise using intentional infliction of mental distress uh, because in addition the plaintiff has to suffer something more than just stress and anxiety but you know a provable illness or a diagnosable illness which is a real hurdle as well so it's it's very interesting that the that the court turned their mind uh, to, to that specifically in this case as well as the the lack of retroactivity you can you know, I guess statutes can always deem something to have been okay, but they can't go and deem something always, you know, always to have been wrong. And that's one of the powers of the common law, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And I think that point about retroactivity ties into that that third uh, rule that the that Justice Inglis considered for recognizing a new tort. And as I said, that balancing between respect for the legislature while also ensuring that the common law can evolve to protect people and our rights when the legislature may not be acting fast enough or because a statute won't apply retroactively. 
And so we've chatted about the the reasons why Justice Inglis found that this tort met the test in Nevson for the creation or the recognition, rather, of a new tort. How did Justice Inglis describe the, the elements of this new tort? So there's four things plaintiff has to prove to establish liability for this new tort, public disclosure of private facts. Uh, first, the plaintiff has to prove the defendant publicized an aspect of the plaintiff's private life. Second, that the plaintiff did not consent to the publication. Third, that the matter publicized or its publication would be highly offensive to a reasonable person in the position of the plaintiff. And fourth, that the publication was not of legitimate concern to the public. And and when I hear that, I sort of think it's an anti-doxing tort. Like, you know, you think about situations in which someone's address is shared online or, I mean, I, I don't know, she doesn't, she doesn't specifically address something like an address, but you think maybe it could be extended to that. Well, and that is, in my opinion or view, an interesting thing about this case and something that we'll be watching for is to see what other types of private information courts apply this tort to. So as I said, the first element of the tort is that the defendant publicized an aspect of the plaintiff's private life. Although this case dealt with intimate images, the way that the tort is articulated, uh, allows for the protection of a broader category of private information. And in fact, Justice Inglis identified four established categories of private information that would qualify for protection beyond sexually explicit images. So for example, uh, information about financial matters, information, not just images, about sexual matters, relationship records, and health records. So you can imagine that the recognition of this new tort may have more sweeping changes than the facts of this case would otherwise suggest. And I suppose the other point to make is that it's it's not a closed list in, in terms of the examples that are given. And depending on the circumstances and that sort of provided for in the first step of the analysis, other ones may be added as, as appropriate or as needed. And that's is sort of an, another interesting distinction sort of between statute-based law and, and co- judge-made common law in that it, it can provide for future additions or future incremental changes in a way that statutes can't. You know, they have to describe, they have to be prescriptive and precise, um, which is both helpful in terms of predictability, but can leave them a little flat-footed sometimes in terms of responding to uh, ways in which people find new ways to be evil. That's right. And I think that point, Mark, is... One that motivated, perhaps, Justice Inglis to recognize this new tort. And what I mean by that is that throughout her reasons, it's clear that uh, she was concerned about the proliferation of the internet and the ease with which a person can share private information about another person without consequences. And so this case marks uh, or represents the court's uh, interest or desire to step in to protect individuals' privacy interest in their private information. Um, we have established privacy you know, laws and common law and statutory law that protects our information privacy or, or privacy in our personal information. We have laws that protect the privacy of our person, and we have laws that protect the privacy of our property. 
And so this is a step toward uh, additional protection for our private information, which is is important in, in an age where uh, the distribution of information is so easy and the person whose information is being shared has very little ability to prevent the distribution in the first place. I think it'll be really interesting to see, like, because of the way in which this case uh, came to the courts and particularly the fact that um, there was not opposing counsel on the other side. It will be interesting, I think, to see how this tort is dealt with um, by subsequent courts or on by appellate courts. Yeah, Jenny, I can see you're, <laughs> you have something to say on that. On that note, I, I can say that uh, there is at least one more recent decision from the court of Queen's Bench applying this tort and finding liability. So Alex, you make a great point in that because the defendant did not defend and this was a default judgment, there's almost zero chance. In fact, there probably is zero chance of an appeal. So this case will not provide an opportunity. The E.S. Shillington case will not provide an opportunity for the Alberta Court of Appeal to weigh in on whether this new tort should be recognized or should have been recognized. Uh, but because it has since been applied by the Court of Queen's Bench in subsequent decisions, we may see the Court of Appeal weigh in on this sooner than later. That really did put um, Justice Inglis in a difficult position, didn't it? I mean, you know, the, in our common conception, judges are supposed to function as arbiters, you know, ideally against two, you know, equally matched or equally represented opponents and then decide, but here she would have had to, in one way, anticipate the arguments against, um, and in order for her decision to have, have, you know, the appropriate weight and appropriate impact. And I, and I think that point really, uh, highlights the importance that Justice Inglis placed on ensuring that a person's private information is protected from public disclosure to take this step uh, of recognizing a new tort in the context of a uh, of an undefended suit, I think really demonstrates the importance of protecting private information in circumstances where the statute, the statutory law, for example, or other other torts uh, have left gaps uh, and speaks to, you know, the um, at least Justice Inglis's view about how necessary this really was. Uh, Jenny, thanks so much for being uh, on the podcast. This has been fascinating, and you'll you'll have to come back once uh, we, the collective, we've had an opportunity to see how this case uh, gets treated, either in in the appellate court in in Alberta or or whether uh, other provinces follow suit and and take up this tort as well. So, thanks again for coming and uh, and speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For those listening, you can stay up to date by connecting with us on social media using the handle at Lawson Lundell and by subscribing to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also check out a recent blog post uh, that Jenny did on this issue by going to our uh, Lawson Lundell website and searching Jenny's name. Uh, Thanks very much for listening. Mm